0: Up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys, and passions,
1: and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color, or a veteran, or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am so thrilled to be here today with Whitney Curry, CMO at Picasso. Whitney, thank
0: you so much for joining us. Bethany, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a really fun chat.
1: I'm so looking forward to it. And we always invite our guests to just share a little bit about their backgrounds. Tell us a bit about who you are and the journey that you've taken to get to where you are today. You bet. Well, we're talking
0: today, I'm, I'm calling you from my home office here. I actually work from my backyard in Seattle, Washington. My pandemic purchase was a very simple ADU to create some separation between church and state. I'm a, a working mom and I have kiddos at home. So I work from my backyard here in Seattle. It's pouring down rain and hopefully you're, you're someplace warmer. But my company, Picasso, where I lead marketing is actually a distributed company. So on an any day, I'm talking to coworkers who work across 25. States and six countries and nearly half a dozen time zones. So we're a distributed company. But before I came to Picasso, I actually started my career at Zillow. And Zillow was there for 12 years, started as the company's first intern. And over my tenure there, ended up leading brand marketing. So it was a really wonderful adventure and, and set of experiences that led to prepare me for my
1: work today. So interesting. And I love the fact that you started at Zillow as an intern, you know, and then really rose through the ranks. Can you talk to us about that experience? You know, how that, how that unfolded for you? I mean, as an intern, you, you really are entering in at the ground floor. How did you make the most of that opportunity and just fulfill your growth potential?
0: Yes, it was the ground floor, and at that point, Zillow was just a baby company. I, when I first heard about the company, I actually remember saying to someone, "Did you mean Pillow, not Zillow?" Because it wasn't a household brand yet; it was just this, you know, small startup. There were less than a hundred people. And it piqued my interest, Bethany, because my mother was a real estate agent. And so I was loosely familiar with the industry, having grown up with you know household uh, dinner time stories of real estate signs that went astray and buyers and sellers. So I was interested in the category, but I knew from watching my mother's experience that I didn't want to sell real estate. I loved the category and the space and the idea of home, but I didn't want to be on the front lines having the transaction. So the intersection of Zillow with technology plus real estate piqued my interest. So I had my internship there. It was the summer before my senior year, I think. And at the end of my internship, I pitched uh, who is now the co-founder of Picasso who I've now worked with for 15 plus years, Spencer Raskoff. I actually asked if he would meet me for coffee. I remember going down to the lobby at the Starbucks and pitching him on why he should hire me full-time after graduation. And he said, oh, well, this is really awkward. And I I said back, oh no, like, Oh, thinking that my bold move had had gone the wrong way, and he said, "Well, did you know we were planning on offering you a job later today?" <laughs> so it was so funny; it was timing worked out out perfect. But I think that was the beginning of of my what has now kind of become my personal brand of of working to lean in and to own opportunities. And if you see a gap that you can fill, that maybe someone hasn't noticed that you're the right person for that, raise your hand and. And propose what you think is a, a solution that could benefit the company as, as well as yourself.
1: I love that story, Whitney, because I think it sort of flies in the face of some of the socialization that we get as women in this country, which is like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't don't put your hand up mm-hmm. too high, you know, don't don't ask for stuff, like, you know, just kind of sit back and and don't be too too visible or too much of a pain. And yet in life, we actually need to go after what we want, you know, and Absolutely. we need to advocate for ourselves. And so I love that vision of you as a young woman, just deciding that this was the thing that you wanted and making it happen for yourself. Thank you. It's.
0: I think it has become something that I've lived out even today through my current work at Picasso and that I encourage with my team. This is a, you know, Zillow at that stage was a hyper growth startup and, and that's where Picasso is. And, what a fantastic platform for you to launch, launch or continue to grow and expand upon your career when there's you no know, endless amounts of work and if you're, you know, smart and proactive and creative in thinking around how you can problem solve and present solutions. What manager doesn't love to have that conversation with a, you know, rising star employee? So I, I welcome mm-hmm. that from my team. But I agree, it can feel a little counterculture.
1: Well it takes guts. I mean I think mm-hmm. putting yourself out there and making the ask, it takes guts. And I remember, I did the same thing early in my career. And I asked the, the CEO, I think you should create this position. And I think I should be your first person who you hire for it. And he just kind of responded simply, no, <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. Um, but then interestingly, maybe two weeks later, he gave me the job. And it was just like, actually kind of moving through that no and then getting to yes was a really Mm -hmm. formative experience for me, Mm -hmm. you know, asking for what I wanted, getting momentarily shut down and then finding a way to to make it to yes. I think about that all the time. Like it just gives you courage to go after bigger Mm -hmm. asks over time. Yeah. And that,
0: and the, to be okay with that, the path from no TS yes. isn't
1: necessarily
0: linear. You had a yes. low, you probably went home that night and felt pretty crappy about how that so conversation went and <laughs> self-guessed, you know, 2nd guess yourself. And then you just had to, you know, enjoy that, not enjoy, but just hang on for that ride on the yes. path to yes. Yes, exactly. I was, I was actually thinking while you were, were talking, I've used this too with, with mentorship relationships mm-hmm. and for example, there was a, a woman who's been a wonderful, really pivotal mentor for me for now, gosh, seven or eight years. I met mm-hmm. at a some charity nonprofit conference thing, and, and we had a really good mini interaction. And I drove home from that thinking, I want to keep talking to her. And we mm-hmm. just had this small interaction, but I felt like there was this spark of, of connection that I could learn from her. And so I found her and for me. I tracked down her email from the organizer. And I remember the next day on on the train into work, I sent her an email saying, here's why I think you should be my mentor. (laughs) And Uh here's three reasons. And here's, and I I would like to, if if you're willing, I would love to take you out to lunch three times and I will pay for lunch and I will come to your cafe closest to your work. But would you be willing for that? And she wrote me back and said, yes. And like, that was the beginning of this, you know, beautiful professional. And now it's moved into personal relationship as well. But it was just, you have to be proactive. She wasn't thinking about me as this you know, junior, eager, eager beaver person who she met for five minutes. You have to take the initiative and,
1: and find those opportunities. You know, that's really interesting. I find that story really interesting because mentorship is so crucially important. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's a kind of fundamental principle at Breakline that it's not just how amazing any one person is. It's also who you know who can help you, you know, who's invested in you, who's coaching in you, who's coaching you. And yet I think asking someone to be a mentor is pretty bold. And the ask can, can feel like a lot to the recipient, the way that you phrased it. But what you did was couch it in a way that made it easier for her to say, yes, you said three lunches, I'll come to you, I'll pay for it you know, and you kind of positioned it in a way for that made it easy for her to say yes. Can you talk talk to us about like, when you're in the hunt for a mentor, what what should you be looking for in that person? And how do we get them to say yes to something Mm -hmm. with empathy that everyone's so busy? I mean, you're CMO, you have young kids, you're, you know, it's just like, there's a lot going on in your life. But how do we get to yes, under those circumstances?
0: It's that, that's the needles to thread, right? Because everyone's mm-hmm. so busy. For me, when I was in college, so I remember someone said to me, you need to lean into your status as a college student because people mm-hmm. look back on their time in college and they look back on it most fondly.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: everyone wants to help a college student. And so I think, and I use that example because like play the card that you currently have. So as mm-hmm. a, for instance, in school, when I was working to, you know, have informational coffees, I would, I applied that advice that I'm a student here at the university, have a 15 minute coffee with you. And people, you know, lean on that. Or as a, you know, young mom, something that the woman um, who's my mentor is her name is Michelle. And she had shared a small interaction when we had met at the larger networking event around her experience being a working mom. And I use that to bridge the connection. Now, for me, I'm a CMO of a startup and there's so much that I know and so much even more that I don't know. And all the time, like just last week, I reached out to a CMO who is of a similar company in a different category, like one stage more advanced than we are. And I said, hey, can you remember back when you were getting started and you were working through XYZ problem? Could I have 30 minutes to talk to you about this over Zoom? And I think it's some of that contextualization and I let, you know, in all of those examples outlining who you are, what you're coming from, the perspective you'll bring to the conversation, time boxing it in whatever way is appropriate, and then being specific around what you want to gain from the interaction. Mm
1: -hmm. The other
0: thing I found, Bethany, is that there's, to me, mentorship and sponsorship are two different, really important things. And when I look back at my career, it's both outside mentors as well as internal sponsors who mm-hmm. have played a really important role in in my life.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about the difference as you see it? Sure. To me, what it means to me
0: is a sponsor of someone inside your organization who's going to have your back, who knows that you have ambitions that may be greater than what your current you know, role or position is today. And they're in your corner. They're going to advocate for you in you know closed room or Zoom sessions when ideas are being surfaced. They're going to say, hey, what about Whitney? What you know? Oh, there's a leadership training program. What about what about Whitney? Or oh, we're looking to expand this. Oh, I bet Whitney would be interested in doing that. And so they have your back. They're in spaces and corners you may not be yet, and can support you. For me, I think of my mentors as outside resources who are helping to fill in a you know skill deficit or. Whether or not it's like a functional skill or a soft skill, and can provide a set of experiences that help round out who you are, that you can then bring to your day to day work inside your company.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And while you were while you were talking through that perspective, I, I I just posted about this on LinkedIn. Just the whole concept of asking for help and how asking for help is actually a power move, and mm-hmm. lots of us are coming from. Communities or even families where you're sort of conditioned not to ask for help. Like, you know, you should be self sufficient. You should be able to do this on your own. Sometimes, particularly with the veterans that we serve, they'll say, well, someone needs help more than I do. You know, I don't want to draw that resource that could be going to somebody else. But the most successful people we know are experts at asking for help. And so, kind of adopting the mentality that if I want to succeed, I need other people coming alongside Mm -hmm. me on this journey, I think is really powerful and really important, especially for folks from underselected backgrounds to be aware of. Such a great point. And I think
0: it's also viewing your request for help as a sign of intellectual curiosity, which is a sign of intelligence. Yeah, A different mentor of of mine, someone who I've picked up along the way in the last year or so uses the phrase puzzling, he'll say, Oh, I'm puzzling over insert, whatever the, the problem may be that we're working through together. And I love that because a puzzle is something that's not when you sit down to do a puzzle, you don't assume you're going to complete the whole puzzle in the first setting. And you don't assume that you're not going to accidentally grab one wrong piece. And you're know, try to wedge it in the wrong way. It's it's this, you know, longer, period of rumination and experimentation and success, but also failure. And
1: so Mm -hmm. I I think about that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, in your career, you spent 11 years at Zillow, then you you had a bit of a, a break and you did something, something entrepreneurial. And then now you're kind of reconvening with some of your former Zillow colleagues at Picasso. And I'm really struck by this because the average tenure in tech is 18 months. It's so short. You know, the, our expectation for the length of time that we're going to contribute to a team or to an organization or a mission is so brief, but you've really dug in and committed. Can you talk to us about, about like, committing, you know, for the long term and just sticking with it, you know, through, through thick and thin in some respects?
0: Yes, when I started at Zillow as an intern, I was not allowed to legally drink, <laughs> and I can guarantee you that I did not think that I would be at Zillow through having, getting married, buying my first home, having my first kid, having my second kid. I mean, it was just absolutely mind blowing to think that that would have been the duration. So I don't think I set out thinking it would be a ten year, you know, chapter of my life but it happened and the reason why I stayed is because every it felt like every 3 or 4 years I intentionally reinvented myself and who I was at that company. So I said, okay, great. I've, I've started doing X, I want to build on that and move to Y. Now that I understand why I want to layer on Z. Now that I've done Z, how can I start back again and, and go back to A? And so for me, it was the intentional choice to have what were really four distinct chapters of my Zillow experience there under that roof. And the reason I think why it was possible for me to do that was because of my personal ambition, but also because the company was at such a stage where it was growing really quickly. And so there was all sorts of white space. So it was a good environment for me to be able to paint the next opportunity and and then to live into that. So it was really a rewarding time for me professionally. And now to look back on on that, I have such, such fond memories. And to be able to be in a new experience here at Picasso with a handful of those colleagues, too, the continuity of those relationships is really special. And I think, frankly, has been part of what's helped Picasso to launch with such speed and success early on is there's a handful of us in the leadership team and the early hires who did have a shared history of experience. And so as we're problem solving, you know, sometimes you'll say, oh, remember that one time when that thing happened and you're finishing each other's sentences and you just know what they're talking about. And so you can pull forward that and, you know, build on it for what you're working on in the present tense.
1: Whitney, will you talk to us about Picasso? Tell us what what you all are building and why you were so excited to jump in and be part of the team. Absolutely. So Picasso
0: is, we're about a year and a half old now is a marketplace that helped people buy and own a second home. And it is reinventing how people approach the transaction of second home ownership. And typically, if people are thinking about owning a second home, they think either you, it's a binary thing. I want a second home and I have one or I don't. <laughs> and, and you think if you're going to have one that you're going to have the whole home. But when you look at the data, most people use their second home well, you know, four to six weeks each year. And so that means that roughly 10 months out of the year, that second home is sitting empty. And if it's not sitting empty, it is limited choices. You can, you know, just gift it to friends and family to use, or you can manage it as a short-term rental if it, if that happens to be permissible in the area in which you operate. But either way, there's a lot of headache and hassle that comes along with that. And so Picasso said, Hey, there's a better way to help more people unlock the dream of owning a second home. When you poll Americans, three out of four folks with a household income greater than $150,000 aspire to own a second home. But most people just tire kick for years and years or decades, thinking that it'll be something that's possible for them, You know, maybe in retirement or, or later on in their life. But we're helping to increase accessibility by taking an approach of co-ownership. So we help multiple families co-own the same home. And then Picasso comes in and does all that stuff that you don't really want to do. We take care of bill pay. We take care of scheduling. We make sure pest control comes. We furnish the home. Every detail that you don't want to do, just think of it as a big, easy button that you're hitting. And Picasso is is taking care of all those details so you get to show up and enjoy your property.
1: That's so neat. And I'm thinking about the the description that you provided of sort of reconvening as an early team from Zillow coming over Mm -hmm. and and building Picasso. And sometimes what happens is that if you work together for a long time, I think some unimaginative leaders can have trouble Mm -hmm. seeing their colleagues as they are today versus as they were as the intern. So there can be like some cognitive dissonance, you know, but it sounds like with you all at Picasso you're able to really value what you're bringing to the table today. You left Zillow as the director of brand management yes. and you're coming into Picasso as chief marketing officer. Like that was yes. a leap and yes how cool that the team really saw you as you are today versus, you know, several years ago when you were at Zillow. <laughs> I,
0: I couldn't agree more. And there's such a value that as a marketer, I place on building and establishing trust with our customer. And I think that that same you know, importance of trust plays through in your working relationships too. And I have a you know, rich history of, of trust through my colleagues who are you know, longtime colleagues from from silo days pulled forward to at least I, I I like to think I'm establishing a strong foundation of trust as well with my current team, and I think that when you trust people and you believe in their capabilities, and in what you're the kind of the task that you're setting, you, of course you have a baseline of foundational skills, but you can believe in in the person and their opportunity. And if they believe in themselves that they are capable of of achieving that, like, let's go, let's see if it's possible. And and a startup is a wonderful environment to experiment in that way. How did your colleagues earn your trust? Mm, Love that question. I would say I am something that I really value are two core Whitney-isms that I talk about a lot. The first is the power of Real time and direct feedback. If you are being direct and honest and clear with me, that even if the message you're delivering isn't something that I necessarily want to hear, that goes so far with me. Like, please tell me to my face, in not, it doesn't mean in the hot moment, but in the relevant, you know, don't wait six months. Let's have an opportunity to work through it together. And so, to me, that is. A, a core to a trust a trusting relationship is the ability to have safe space and the intellectual security where you can deliver feedback that's positive or 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 negative. So that's the first thing. The second is I assume positive intent, and that is foundational to my marriage, to my relationship with my kids, to my relationship with my peers, and then my team as well at, at Picasso. I assume that people are trying to do the right thing, that they're trying to show up and do their best every day. That's what I'm bringing to the table. And so I think when you approach conversations or interactions from that way, you're starting from a place of trust and hopefully it's not lost that you're, you're building on that.
1: Hmm. Thank you so much. And I think the, the power of feedback is so transformative and I'm not positive that Americans are great at this. You know, like I think that there are other cultures that are much more direct than we are kind of as a, as a matter of social norms. And so we really have to challenge ourselves to be upfront with each other sometimes, especially when the feedback is constructive. <laughs> and yet if we hold back, we're possibly preventing our colleague or our counterpart in that situation from really discovering how big they can go, and how good they can be, how great they can be. So I love that. That's one of your your Whitneyisms, as you as you termed it. It's so crucial,
0: Bethany. I think it's a skill that I've worked. And I think I know it is a skill that I have worked on with intentionality over the years. And as an early manager earlier in my career, I often sandwich feedback in such a way that the bread was so thick. I think people missed the point. Like I was so concerned yes. about maintaining this. You know, shared sense of you know you like me, I like you, and, and, and kind of keeping the peace. That it was hard to get the point, and so I've had to work through coaching over over the years to make sure that it's still very acceptable to open and close with something positive. But you need to make sure that the main point that you're landing is clear and received, because otherwise you're not helping anyone. That the, the conversation was then ineffective.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whitney, I wanted to change course a little bit as we were. Prepping for this conversation, you mentioned that you were the first in your family to graduate from college. And this is true for a big percentage of our Breakline population as well. What an amazing achievement as a young woman to be the first. That's, that's just so awesome. Oh, thank you. The My parents both
0: were consistently committed to my education and did everything that they could to foster a a home where your studies and your commitment to your work and your extracurriculars were your number one job and something that was, was prioritized. And they did all that they could to open doors for me as well. And I, I shared that with you about being the first because I think sometimes folks can assume that maybe you started on second base or you started on third base or maybe you're, you know, at home plate, just trying to swing and get a ground ball to make it on to first, whatever it may be. And for me, it's been an important part of of my story to use all of my connections, whether or not it's someone you meet at a conference and then cold, cold email to ask them to be your mentor or a professor who you asked to take under your wing or a connection that you use through like a you know friend of a friend's parent. All of those are ways that can help you have an introduction to to a new opportunity and and i I've worked hard to do that and i'm proud of I'm proud of myself for that and I also am really thankful for my parents for communicating and setting a high bar for for me with in regards to my education and I hope to do the same with my girls
1: how did they feel when you graduated I mean that was a huge achievement for you did they also see it as an achievement for themselves I think so yes they're
0: are huge have always been huge supporters and cheerleaders and even still to this day something will happen and you know a work win will happen and they'll, oh honey we're
1: so proud of you <laughs> so sweet <laughs> that's amazing i love it yeah so you are you mentioned your girls a couple of times mm-hmm. and you've got a big career and you also clearly are crazy about your kids. Can we talk a little bit about that? The whole dynamic of running a busy household, a busy life, a busy career all at one time. You know, Do you have advice for women and parents as, as they're trying to figure out how to navigate this phase of life. And I do I have four girls, Whitney, between oh. the ages of three and twelve.
0: Oh and wow.
1: <laughs> yes, and Amazing. um and I love them so much and I'm I'm feeling so grateful that I have the opportunity to be a mom and also to be an entrepreneur. And yet I think we do a disservice to moms and working parents in general when we kinda gloss over it and and make it seem like it is doable all the time, or easy all the time, or there's, you know, all you have to do is try harder or sleep less or whatever. <laughs> and to me, I think one of my secrets to success is just recognizing that perfection isn't the goal, not for me, you know, in, in any area of my life. That's, that's from you around being a working parent, you know, and, and being busy in, in multiple spheres of your life all at one time.
0: Bethany, I didn't know you had four girls. We now could talk for the next two hours. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Wow. Being a working mom is really hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, in my household, both my husband and I work full time and we both have full busy jobs and it is a very um, rich and a very full life. And I Mm -hmm. I love that. And it also is chaotic and exhausting and hard and rewarding and, and all of those things mixed together in one. I don't think I have a silver bullet to, mm-hmm. you know, make it simple for anyone. I think there's something I am passionate about is when I, when I talk to first time moms, encouraging them to, and every family's different. But for me, I almost stepped out of the workforce when I had my first baby and it was, I spent the last, at that point I had three months maternity leave. I think I cried every single day day, the last six weeks of my maternity leave, like grieving what that transition was going to be and scared that I wasn't going to be able to be the mom that I wanted to be to my sweet baby, while also fulfilling the desire. Like I loved my I loved my work, but I also now loved this baby. And I, I didn't know how to sit with those two things together. And so I almost just like threw in the towel. And I didn't, I went back. And the first day was awful. And the second day was fine. And it was just like, oh, wow. Okay, like, Transition is really hard. New doing new things for the first time is scary, but and it wasn't that it was easy every single day after that. But it was like I knew that I could, I knew I was capable of of working through that transition. And so I think for for me, it is being flexible with my expectations of myself is probably the, frankly, the biggest thing. And being okay that there you just can't do everything. I can't go on every field trip with the preschool. I can prioritize going on one and have so much fun on that one, but I can't do that. And I, I can't volunteer every week. I can show up for the Valentine party. That's, you know, the, the one-time thing and, and that's okay. There's other amazing moms in the classroom who are you know, it's amazing teachers and amazing parents. And we're all working together to love on the kids. So I think being gentle with myself has been a learning and then also working to connect with each of my, I try to have a, a moment of connection that's personal to each, each of one of my girls each day. And so that it is focused time that's intentional where I'm with them eye to eye digging in around what it is that matters to them on that day. Yesterday, my daughter, uh, my, my six year old at recess, there was a bumblebee that almost stung her on the playground. And that prompted this whole big set of drama and like i was so happy to hear about that with her at the end of the day and it was a small thing but it's you know the moment that mattered to her so plugging into with your kids and and just doing the best you can but also being gentle with yourself
1: being gentle with yourself it's just such good advice and I think also assessing the standard that you're holding yourself to and being sure that that's the standard that you want and The reason why I say that is there's that whole phrase around work-life balance. And that has never felt right to me for me. And so I've shared with the Breakline community that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a great leader and a great teammate. I want to have four kids and be part of their lives and be connected. And I want to have a great marriage. And I don't, For me, I'm not going after balance at the same time that I'm going after all three of those things. I'm going after sustainability. You know, am I, is the pace that I'm setting right now, is that doable for me over the long term? And then the other way that I distill it down, Whitney, is I ask myself two questions every day. And one of them is, am I doing my best on behalf of my community? and note that it's not like am i succeeding at every single goal i have for my community <laughs> because that's not doable all the time but am i doing my best. And then the second one is do i feel connected to people i care about? Because i think oh, that I connection that. yeah, and that's that. really at the foundation of so much of what helps us succeed. You know, mm-hmm. as as parents, as people, as as leaders too.
0: I'm going to take trying, that as
1: yeah. Yeah, something yeah. to think about. The, the, do I feel connected to people I care about? I love that as an idea. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's right. That's grounding. It's really grounding. And then for me, it also inoculates me against imposter syndrome. Because I think one of the powers of imposter syndrome is that it can be very isolating. You know, that experience of feeling like an imposter can feel like a very lonely experience. And then reaffirming who you're close to, who's going to hold up the mirror and remind you of who you are, that's really powerful. That's so powerful. And
0: funny, you bring up in, imposter syndrome. I One of my favorite quotes from Eleanor Roosevelt is that no one can make you feel inferior without mm. your consent. Mm. And so it took me years to realize that my imposter syndrome, which I absolutely had with intensity at earlier seasons and still deal with on a you know present tense basis in moments mm-hmm. is actually an issue with me. It's mm-hmm. an issue with with myself and if I'm choosing to my, my, my you know inward reflection of where my skills are and where I think they need to be and what thoughts I may perceive other people are having around me. And an opportunity for myself to say, let's set the record straight, Whitney to Whitney. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What's happening here? And when I realized that unlock for me, it was so powerful because it then gave me a, uh, I'm like a to-do list kind of person. It it gave me an action plan to, to go get, uh, to, to solve that. Like, oh, okay, here I, I feel like I'm inadequate in X. How can I, how can I go Surround myself with people or skills or extra resources so that I don't feel that way. And to me, that sense of being in in the driver's seat versus having it happen to me as more of a victim has
1: really transformed how I think about my own imposter syndrome. Mm. I love that story, and it reminds me. I interviewed Amit Bendoff, who's the CEO of Gong. He grew up in a really modest household. I can't remember if he was the first in his family to graduate from college, but going to college was a huge achievement for him. And and obviously, he's had an amazing career since then. But he said one of the most important things that he did along the way was to surround himself with people who believed in him. You know, it's just so important to have affirmation around you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely,
0: and and it could even be a small comment. Like I think about even this week, there was a someone just said it, it in what was kind of a hard, a hard week with juggling a lot of of things in my day to day work. Someone lobbed just a small comment of encouragement to me, and I held on to that. That has like kept yes. me going this whole week. Of that small, they were talking about their, you know, confidence in 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 my abilities to tackle X problem, and that colonel man, you don't always get stuff like that every yes. day. And so when you get it, file it, you know, file it away in, in your brain. One of my first managers at Zillow instructed me to create it. At that point, I used Microsoft Office tools. They said, make a, make a folder uh, in your inbox and, and call it nice things. And when you get a positive piece of feedback, drag it into that folder, because you're going to have bad days. And you can call upon those and see how much you know people believe in you and that you're doing a good job and that you're capable. And so I don't do that in the same way with with an actual folder in my inbox today but I do keep that practice like that positive comment that someone shared earlier this week it's helpful
1: that is that is so helpful and I think it's also a really helpful tactic as a leader you know as as a leadership philosophy one of my mentors and I think he's paraphrasing someone I don't know who who actually said it first but he said praise and thanks are free so use mm. them liberally and Um, And it's so true, like just to be present in our gratitude for other people and the contributions that they're making to our lives and not forgetting to communicate that. Mm -hmm. Yes, as simple, I appreciate you can go really long ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Whitney, one of the questions that we ask on our application, and this is the most important question to me. Because we hear so much about the grit and the resilience and the creativity and the ingenuity of members of our community. And that question is, can you share a forging experience with us? And we don't put any parameters around it. We're just curious, you know, something that you've, you've navigated around and pushed through and, and sat with and finally transcended. Mm-hmm. Is there a forging experience that you could share with our community?
0: Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful question, and that's a great word too. Foraging, that paint such a, a vivid picture. I think for me, I would say professionally, it was taking this role at at Picasso felt at, at times really like like foraging, mm-hmm. and being comfortable with my confidence in myself. That I I, I remember. I'll back it up a minute when. I was offered the role. There was a multiple page, I think it was three or four pages, like page after page of descriptions of my responsibilities. And I sat there and I had a highlighter and I highlighted all the things I thought that today I could nail out of the park. And the whole page wasn't yellow. There were sections where it was blank and I didn't know if I could do it. And so I had to to sit with the opportunity and say, the page is not all yellow Do I still want to go for it? Do I believe that the things I have not highlighted as, you know, core competencies that I give myself an A on today that I can figure out? And ultimately, clearly, I I said yes and thought that I would be able to figure it out. And I'm proud of myself for saying yes to that and for recognizing and for having the self-awareness to say some of these things are not yellow, but that doesn't mean I'm not competent. It means I need to get help. I need to surround myself and build out my team so that the skills are complementary so that the whole page can be yellow, but it doesn't need to be filled just by me. I can't do it all on my own, but together we can. And that's been so rewarding to see the dynamic and diverse set of people who are part of our marketing department and how we complement one another. Mm
1: -hmm. I love the the implicit humility that you were communicating there where you said the whole page should be yellow, but it doesn't all have to be because of me, you know, and just the idea that that's what a team is. And that's what a community is. And we don't have to be all things to all people at all times.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think my to, to answer your other version, since we were, were talking about motherhood, I think my other foraging experience has just been being a mom and mm. figuring out what that looks like in each season, because it's so different having the little itty babies to having toddlers, to now having early elementary aged kids who have different needs. And so being flexible with what showing up in their life looks like and ways that we engage in those moments that matter in each of these different seasons and and knowing that what works today will definitely not work in the same way in six months or or six years, but but being comfortable
1: with that and being flexible. Mm -hmm. So we're both girl moms. And yes. there are a couple of things that I think about a lot with raising my girls. Are there and you've talked a lot about really being present for each of your daughters every day in, in a way that matters to them. Are there other are there other kind of parenting philosophies that you've adopted in particular because they're girls, you know, mm-hmm. and, and young women? Like are there things that you think about really regularly? wanting to instill in them, wanting to help them lay a foundation? And if so, what, what are those? Yes, we talk a lot about this in our home. I am so fortunate
0: to have an amazing husband who's very engaged. And our responsibilities to care for our family and our household defy stereotypical gender norms. And so as a for instance, my husband makes dinner 95% of the mm. time. like That is huge, and whether or not it's food prep or kid care or doing hair or thinking about you know who's getting what for soccer or whatever it may be, like we don't split things that are you know traditionally female and traditionally male. And I love that. I love that my girls see us working together as a team. That our family unit is a team, and we support each other. And that that doesn't mean that it looks the same as maybe you know their friends, family, or not all families are different. And as long as we're working together and are you know aligned in what we're trying to accomplish that, that we support one another. So I like that they know that dad can do anything and mom can do anything. And they see that
1: example. That's beautiful. And Whitney, I know we're, we just have a few minutes left and I wanted to close with just more about Picasso. And I've been reflecting on the fact that Picasso is a, is a company kind of born in the pandemic, you know, and it's a historically difficult time in some ways to to build a new business. And yet Picasso was doing so well. And so many people, because we're spending so much time at home, so many people are thinking about their homes, whether it's a first home or a second home in, in a, a deeper way, perhaps than we were pre-pandemic. Because it's just more central now. Will you talk to us a little bit about the, the present and then the future that you see for Picasso and, and why you're so excited for yourself and for your team there? Yes, I would love to. The, something that I'm
0: most proud of about our first year or so of Picasso is that we were able to achieve product market fit really very early on. And I think that that is because our product and the idea of second home ownership for one-eighth the cost made possible through co-ownership was built off customer insights and was built in response to shifts in consumer behaviors that were true and simmering long before the pandemic. You know, take work from home. People didn't just start working from home or using these technologies in, in twenty twenty. Like they, they were happening before just at lower levels. The interest in second home, if you look at the data, second home interest had been and demand had been peaking up consistently since really 2017, 2018. So it was already on the rise and demand for second homes was outpacing relative demand when you look at mortgage rate lock data and others starts, you know, years before the pandemic, but it went from like a simmer to a rapid boil. Our relationship between how we spend time in other places, like it's very the idea of a workcation, being able to you know do your work from someplace that's not your primary residence. Again, was happening before, and and it is now is really commonplace. So, I'm excited that these permanent consumer behavior shifts are happening because I think they're fundamentally good for society, and I'm excited that Picasso is well positioned to meet this consumer desire in a way that is more modern, more tech enabled, and frankly, more sustainable so that we are wasting less resources and consolidating demand and not having big luxury empty homes with the blinds closed all the time because no one's enjoying them. Like if we're going to have an asset, let's make it fully utilized. And let's be good stewards of the resources that we have. So I find that really rewarding and helps motivate me each day to come to work with purpose and makes the work also really fun.
1: Whitney, such a treat to interview you. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for sharing more about your story and Picasso's story. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to peek
0: behind the curtain a little bit. Bethany, so fun to meet you and and connect. Thank you so much for having
1: me. guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline line arena we're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved a little inspired and if you really had a good time feel free to head on over rate subscribe leave us a review it does help us spread the good word keeps these good vibes rolling
0: yes we would love to hear from you thanks again and we will see you next time